Hey everybody, welcome to the Whole Church Podcast for another bonus episode. That's right, it seems like every time we have Professor Moreland on, we have the need to cover more than we can cover in a full episode. So he does like an episode and a half with us when he joins us, which might tell you who our guest is. It's Professor Moreland. And of course, we're also joined by the better co-host, the one and only TJ Tiberius Juan Blackwell. Hello. Hello. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, welcome to the show, uh, Professor Moreland. I, I know I kind of did that backwards. <laughs> um, we're doing this to actually cover something that um, the Pope has recently, I, I guess decreed is the word, uh, concerning the Latin Mass. Um, but before we jump in, you guys know we like to do half of a silly question for our bonus episodes. We don't want to take up too much time, so we won't do a full question. Um, so I'll just ask everybody, how would you... And that's the half a question, and I'll give my half answer first, let TJ do it, and then uh, Professor Moreland, you can go after that, just give you time to think. Um, my answer is going to be, I think I would start with, and that would be my half an answer to that question. So, okay. TJ? Uh, I think I would get as many cows as I could find, and then I would... <laughs> I just really want to know what the question was now. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Professor Moreland, uh, do you have an half an answer for us? Uh, for how would you? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, how would you mm, manage the classroom this semester? Oh, different approach. Yeah. Solid. Mm. Yeah, I like it. So what's Outside on my mind the these days? Yeah. Nice. All right. Nice. Uh, before we get to the topic of our upcoming episode, uh, you wanted to discuss Pope Francis' recent decree on the Latin Mass. Uh for those listening who don't know what a Latin Mass is or what Pope Francis decreed, uh, could you explain for them what we're talking about with the Latin Mass uh, motu propor- proprio? Motu proprio. Motu proprio. Yes, yeah. I speak Latin. Yeah, no worries. No worries. <laughs> so um, Pope Francis delivered a motu proprio a few weeks ago that puts some new severe restrictions on the Latin Mass. Um, The Latin Mass is the Mass that was promulgated. It's also known as the Tridentine Mass. It was promulgated at the Council of Trent. It was a refinement and a codification of the, um, the liturgy that was used in the Western Church. So it's a very organic development. Um, of the Mass that was celebrated in the West for as long as we can remember. As you may remember from our last conversation, in the East, they were celebrating the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. In the West, um, they celebrated, uh, you know, a different rite of the Mass. And the Tridentine Mass was the typical way that Catholics worshipped until the Second Vatican Council, which took place from 1962 to 1965. Um, in 2007, Pope Benedict authorized a much more generous availability of the Latin Mass. He allowed any priest to say it at any time, and the, any priest did not have to ask his bishop for permission. Now, what Francis has decreed is that the bishops will be the ones to authorize permission, um, and the responses to it have been very multifaceted and we'll get into that in a moment what the various bishops have said right so it's it's more of a return to the post council of trent status quo than it is uh rechanging of the system or the uh, it's it's a return 
to the way things were actually not after post-Trent, but after post-Vatican II, where the Latin right. mass was really driven underground and um, it survived only in some areas. Uh, so a lot of us say we've been thrown back into the closet or back into the catacombs uh, and that we're back to the battle days of the 80s and 90s where we had to search out uh, friendly bishops to allow us to celebrate this mass, which is an integral part of our Catholic heritage. Hmm. So uh, just for a fun question out of ignorance, um, I know sometimes, if, if I'm thinking correctly, the, the Pope speaks authoritatively for the church and sometimes he doesn't. Um, since it said decree, I assume this is one of those times where this is authoritatively, right? No, it's not. The Pope is no. only infallible when he speaks ex cathedra and he has to speak in um, accordance with scripture, tradition, and this ish, this decree is riddled with errors in canon law. It seems to be very poorly written and hastily written. And it is actually a huge question that's being debated right now, whether or not the Pope even had the ability by canon law to promulgate this document. Right. Uh, it also brings into question um, an issue that is going to have ramifications that will last centuries. How can the Pope, who is supposed to be the source of unity in the Catholic Church, decide within such a short period of time, while his predecessor is still alive, to revoke something that his predecessor put in? What is this? The White House? We're going to just change policies based <laughs> on every administration? It's not how the Church operates. All right. Hmm. Yeah, that's some, some strong words and thoughts. Um, yeah. Also, leave a comment on the bonus episode if you just figured out that Pope Benedict II is still alive. Uh, Benedict XVI. He is 16th. still alive. Pope Emeritus Francis Benedict XVI is still alive. Francis is currently sitting on the, uh, on the, right. on the throne right now. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So last time we, we talked, um, I actually had to re-listen to it to try and remember exactly what you and uh, I think Father Jonathan commented some on the different types of mass as well. And one of the things that you said was it, it was a source of unity between the Catholic Church and the Greek Church because the Latin mass was a little more similar to the older traditions like what they what they teach, which I shouldn't say Greek Church, the Orthodox Church. Mm -hmm. um, how does this decree impact your worship and then others who felt closer in unity to one another and closer to God with this type with this style of mass? We've already seen the impact here in Wilmington. The last Latin Mass we had was last month, and the priest that was doing it is no longer feels comfortable doing uh, the Latin Mass, so we're searching for another priest. Um, so this month, we have no idea of whether or not we will be able to have our Latin Mass, which we're having down at St. Mary's. We had 270 people, which is a lot in a small town like yeah. Wilmington, last month. So this has hit home very hard. Um, the quality of liturgy that we get in this area, in the um, New Hanover County area, is very low. It is the it is the same stuff we've been getting since the 1970s. Banal sermons, ugly architecture, horrible music. And this was the one place where we could find beauty and we could worship in the way that my grandparents worshipped. It is the one thing that was bringing in young people into the church, and it's been squashed. Uh, it, it is a, 
the cruelty and the timing couldn't have been worse. And it really does bring into question what the Vatican's priorities are right now uh, in light of other world conditions, like, for example, what's going on in China or the current uprising in Cuba, which they've been remarkably silent on. Right. What roles do uh, tradition and language play in church unity? So one of the advantages of Latin is that it's very theologically precise. One of the things that was beautiful to witness at the Latin Mass I went to is that we would have Vietnamese, Hispanics, um, Chinese, and Eastern Europeans there, and we were all praying together in one language. There are advantages to doing the Mass in the vernacular. There's no question about that. Um, I think it's particularly a great thing that came out of the Council was that all of the biblical readings needed to be done in English or whatever the language of the people was. Um, I think that Latin is just sort of as the Eastern Church uses Greek, or if you're Russian, you use Old Church Slavonic. Um, when you're using a language that is reserved for divine worship, that does create a certain um, mentality. And it is, it is, it's very special. It's very special. Um, one of the things that has not been so great about the past couple of um, decades in the church is that without Latin unifying us, a lot of parishes have split off into sort of their own ethnic enclaves so that we are linguistically separated from our Hispanic brothers and sisters. Uh, who make up a huge majority of the church, and that's been a, a loss. Um, mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's sorry, that's that's kind of rough. Um, mm. Sorry, I, I had a question during that, but I, I forgot what it was. It's just kind of the impact of um, thinking how people are connected through language. Um, ah, I remember what it was. I was I was going to comment sure. on how. Um, we've talked about on the show before, I don't know if it was with you or Sister Rose, but it was, it was on one of our episodes talking about the Catholic Church and something that the church has done really well, in our opinion, is fo- kind of home in, hone in on that, the unity with our ancestors, right? Like uh, mm-hmm. speaking the same language that your grandparents did kind of brings a certain type of connection. And um, that's the type of unity that matters too. You know, it's not something Indeed. we talk a ton about on our show, but it, it does matter. Indeed. Um, so yeah, that was really, I think that was a really strong point as well. It um, was very so, interesting that on the day of the Moto Propio, uh, that the day it came out, I received close to 15 calls. Half of them were from High Church Anglicans. The other half were from um, my Orthodox friends who were very upset about the issue because when they went to the Latin Mass, even though they were Orthodox, they really appreciated sort of being able to see Oh, so this is how the Western half of the Roman Empire worshipped um, in antiquity. Yeah, it was an important part of history, and uh, I suppose it still is. It's not been, um, from my understanding, it's not that the Latin Mass will never occur again, but it, it does prohibit a lot of that, right? It's it's created a chilling effect. Um, yeah. There's no question, and the a lot of priests and bishops who are looking for career advances. Are going to are going to think twice, but the response among the bishops has been 
incredibly diverse. And what I fear is beginning to happen is that the Catholic Church is beginning to balkanize in the same way that the Anglican Church has over issues like liturgy, uh, theology, and that is not a good direction to go. Yeah. Now, when I was reading up on it, uh, part of the reasoning that I I read for this decision um, directly relates to our show. It it said it was partially done for the sake of unity. um, I read part of the reason this happened was because uh, in America, particularly, a lot of the church was divided over the Vatican II Mass versus the Latin Mass, those kind of different styles. And I kind of get the idea that the Pope was trying to say, hey, if we just get rid of the option, there's no division. But I also see, like you've been saying, that it has kind of a polarizing effect. You know, all of a sudden you've isolated one side and kind of makes them feel under attack. Is that kind of a good way to put it? Yes. So we it is it has made people very, very angry. It is increased polarization in a time where we need to be lowering the temperature both in the world and in the church. Um, and the temperatures have been lowered politically uh in the United States to some extent, but they are still very elevated in the church. And this has just stoked the fires. The Catholic church also has more than one liturgy. Um, the, 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 there are, there is the liturgy of the Melkite church in, um, the Arab world. There's a liturgy done by the serial Malabar in Southern India. So there have always been multiple rites. And some of the religious orders, like, for example, the Dominican order, um, they have their own rite. It's, those rites are all very similar to the Tridentine Mass um, or the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. They're very, very similar with some very slight differences. But um, it, what was really quite productive about Benedict XVI's liberalization of the Latin Mass is that it sort of eroded the divide between the Latin Mass crowd and the um, post-Vatican II crowd. There's a lot of intermingling. So um, at the parish I went to in Berkeley, um, they had the Tridentine Mass, but they also had the post-Vatican II Mass. And it just depended on what time you woke up. And, you know, there was a lot of, like, social events together. Whereas beforehand, like, there was sort of an enclave um, because these people felt, the people who were traditionalists felt very persecuted. Um, And now they're being sort of, they feel like they're being shoved back into the basement. Right. Uh, So does this impact uh, churchgoers who aren't Catholic in any way at all? No, not really. I think that it will certainly... Um, I know that the students I teach in women in religion will now no longer be able to, um, may not be able to see what a Tridentine Mass looks like. Um, even people who are not Christian found it to be very interesting from a cultural perspective. And because it is such an element of Western civilization, um, a lot of my friends who are musicians were very interested in going because one of the first things you learn in music class is the structure of the mass because it is so foundational for uh, Western music, Uh, you know, Mozart, Bach, and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, even modern composers will write masses. It's a, it's a musical format. 
I think that a lot of non-churchgoers, um, however, that really don't care too terribly much about anything religious-wise, will see it as an internal matter and will just sort of look at it from the outside and be like, well, why are you arguing over this? It's a very, very silly thing to argue over. But for us and for our compatriots and our, our friends in the Orthodox Church and other denominations, um, I think that from what I've heard, they've not taken it well. And they, their question has really been, what is going on in Rome? Right. So what are the, the most practical ways that the church can show unity through this decision? Well, if there are any. It's, it's difficult. Yeah. Um, we have to continue, of course, this sounds cliched, but we have to continue praying. Uh, we have to... Um, we have to continue doing the work in our parishes to make sure that the liturgy is done uh, in accordance with tradition, uh, that it is focused on the worship of God, and it does not become simply a celebration of the community. Christ is present among the community in every Mass. That is a very important part of um, our faith tradition. But too often... Um, the balance gets out of whack and it simply becomes a celebration of the community and how wonderful it is. That's an element, but you know, it all needs to be balanced out. You know, we, we can socialize a lot of other things. We come to mass to worship and commune with, you know, the triune God. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy to think that such a huge blow to so much of the Christian world uh, cannot affect the rest of it. Yes. It's very, it is very unfortunate. I also think that um, I would say that my, to my fellow Catholics, um, they've often done a very wonderful job and deserve a lot of credit for reaching out to marginalized communities in the church. Uh, they've done a lot of good work uh, with um people who are marginalized socially, people who are marginalized uh, ethnically, uh, immigrants, um, the working poor. Um, they've done really good work with that. I'd like for them to sort of transmit that care and compassion they have for the marginalized for the traditionalists in the church because we are now being marginalized. I think that if there is perhaps some room for unity I think that we need to start having discussions of what does it feel like to be let down by the institutional church? What does it feel like to be um, confused? Because this is something that a lot of people who identify as progressives have a long history of. And, you know, they know what that feels like. This is the first time that we've gotten this in a really long period of time. So maybe... And we could maybe if we could tone the temperature and the language down, we could start talking about the pain and maybe find some room for commonality. Right. Yeah. Well, and um, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, this will just be my, my last comment on here. Um, mm -hmm. Since he, he had a word for his uh, fellow Catholic brothers and sisters, I'll have um, my, my bit for those of us who are in the Protestant church or Orthodox church or anything like that. Um, 
check out Romans 12, 15. It, Paul's talking to the church in the end of Romans, largely talking about unity. He says to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And um, I feel like right now, uh, clearly this is a hard time for a huge portion of our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church. And um, we need to be praying with them and we need to really feel what they feel through this. Right. This is not the time for schadenfreude. It's not the time for scoring uh, political points or for winning one over. It really is a time to sort of delve into that pain and to not and to not gloat and to not gloat. Right. Uh, well, thank you for your extra time today to record this bonus episode. Uh, if you enjoyed the bonus episode, please share it with a friend and come back tomorrow to check out our full episode with Professor Moreland and Sister Rose, uh, where we will be discussing women in religion, specifically focusing on how the Catholic Church handles female leadership. So thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you.